Hello again, friends. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with us as we continue on in these conversations about faith fights. We've now uh, traveled some different terrains in this conversation. Uh, We began with some history. We've talked a little bit more practically recently uh, about history of uh, worship, uh, about some of the things that we might bump into more often in church life. Uh, Last week, of course, talking about that sort of common human experience of, of dividing into teams and to opposing groups and, and to how in the church we're called to uh, really navigate that differently than other organizations because of our commitment to Jesus Christ. And in some ways, Clint, I think that this conversation combines a lot of those strands into one. And let me explain what I mean by that. The conversation about morality in the Christian church is a very ancient, storied history we have in our history engaged with the question of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral conduct and what is immoral conduct. And you can look at any stage of the church's life, both pre-Reformation and especially post-Reformation, and you can see how different Christians, different Reformed Christians, have answered those questions differently. And then you can follow those strands that lead directly to our present experience with our own self-understandings of what we're called to reflect as Christians in our own time and place. And as you have in any moment that is fraught with division, tension, oppositions, we do have Christians today who have really lived into very different identities of what what things do live on different uh, boundaries of morality. And that's not to say that any Christian has given ground that morality is not important or that truth doesn't exist. But we do live in a moment in which Christians can have substantial conversations about those topics. And so in some ways, I think this conversation is going to bring some of those strands together. It's both history and also it is very contemporary. And I also think, Clint, that this is a thing that Uh, Though we may not think about it every single day, about what is right and wrong, we strive as Christians to be people who do live right lives. And so in that sense, I do think this conversation is very practical. Michael, whether it was the intention or not, the Reformation produced a a diversity, a variety. And we now, as you know, a couple of centuries now removed in that whole process, we stand at a place where we have hundreds, literally hundreds of different ways to be Christian. And all Christians have always said that our actions matter, that as people of faith, what we do and what we choose not to do is important. In fact, this is one of the primary ways we live out the faith, by making choices about what is acceptable behavior and practice for a Christian and what isn't. But it but amidst the diversity that we now live with post-Reformation, probably no surprise that Christians have always come to different conclusions about practices, about things that we do. And so in some ways, this isn't a particular theological or particularly theological conversation because it has to do with nuts and bolts of is this okay or isn't this okay but i but i think our hope today is rather than speak into the individual yes and no of any given issue to sort of examine what do we do and how do we handle it when christians find themselves disagreeing on whether something is acceptable or not and you don't have to go far to find lots of examples they're they're everywhere yeah and i think largely 
what you're going to find in the beginning of those conversations is an appeal to Scripture, and I think that's a good place to start. You're going to have Christians turn to the Bible for a source of reflection upon what is and isn't in the character of a Christ follower. And I do think that on one hand, that seems like a simple place to start. And what I mean by that is the Bible is full of moral imperatives, of of things that God has called the people to do. It becomes much trickier and much more nuanced very quickly when you engage with those moral imperatives to the Israelites in the Old Testament, Jesus's later critiques of those uh, Jews who followed the imperatives to their own sake, and Jesus's uh, then emphasis and really intensification of the law by saying it's not just you committing the sin, it's you harboring the sin in your heart, imagining the sin is enough for you to participate in it. When Jesus does that, in many ways, he completely blows up the moral law that comes before because every human knows that we have participated in that sinfulness. And then, you know, you have beyond that, uh, the Pauline letters, you have this very strong reformed history of what God has done on our behalf, uh, this idea of justification by grace through faith. None of these are actions that we take that we uh, merit the gift of salvation. It's not the moral action that earns it, but rather it's God's gift to us. And so, you know, I'm obviously blowing by just an unbelievable amount of thoughtful scholarship here, Clint, but I I wonder if it's helpful to just say right from the start, Christians will immediately turn to the question, what is right and what is wrong? We're going to turn to Scripture. That, That is a good place to turn, but that's not just an open, shut, yes or no, on or off flip of a switch, uh, because there's a lot of reflection, prayer, discernment that we need to bring to the scriptures as we seek to understand what that role of morality is in our Christian life. Sure. I I think discernment has always been difficult, and not to single us out as some sort of special case, but I I do think there's a sense, Michael, in which the modern and postmodern world, it, it has become more difficult in the sense that we are less and less connected to the patterns and the assumptions and practices of the Old Testament world. So in in early America, for instance, when people are still chopping trees, burning wood, there's no automobiles, they're, they're growing food themselves, there is a sense in which that is not terribly disconnected to the way that New Testament and even Old Testament people lived. And, and so the idea of don't have an idol and, you know, you set aside the Sabbath and some of those things, for instance, our Puritan ancestors who, who really still felt like they could open Scripture mm-hmm. and in, in many ways look into a window that fit their life. Well, that becomes very difficult, I think, in the 21st century when you talk about medical advancements, when you talk about technology that that the Bible really couldn't imagine. And, and as it is increasingly difficult to just open the Bible and find a direct line of, of guidance for complicated and complex issues that the Bible doesn't picture that weren't a part of the people's experience, then we have to 
make those decisions by inference and by interpretation. And that, of course, leaves lots of room for disagreement. And, you know, what does the Bible say about medical research? Well, nothing. (laughs) So how do we then determine whether we consider that a moral practice or not? What does the Bible say about um, eating genetically engineered food? About uh, We could name a hundred things mm-hmm. just in our day this morning that the Bible isn't going to have a direct correlation. It's not going to be, be able to speak clearly about those things because those things are not a part of the world that created the Bible. And that leaves Christians with a big job and within that job, lots of room to uh, to disagree with each other. Yeah, we, we've already had a conversation about the fights over Scripture, and I don't want to linger too long here, but we could not overemphasize, I don't think it's possible, how significant the Scriptures, the, the significant role, rather, the Scriptures have played in the Christian understanding of what is in right character as a Christ follower. And I, I just think it's worth noting here from the start of this conversation that I'm very suspicious of any reading of the Bible that that is done with a razor edge scalpel. If you go to the scriptures and you find one passage or you find three passages in three different books and they all say the same thing and you build a moral understanding of what a Christian should or should not do from those, I find that very dangerous territory. Scripture read in isolation and, and not with an overarching understanding of the story and meaning of Scripture, for me, it tends to lead us, I think, down a direction that we focus far more on ourselves than we do on the one who wrote and speaks through Scripture. And there's this image that some people use of Scripture as a map, that, that if we could just open Scripture in front of us, it would lead us through life. I find that image rather unhelpful, because if you open Scripture in some of those pivotal moments in life, it can be frustrating because it isn't a map. It does not tell you, now go to point B. Rather, Scripture is a signpost that points us to the creator of all things, and it introduces us to the one who has a plan. That's what we call the gospel, the good news, for our salvation and for the transformation of our hearts and souls. And so, as we come to these texts, I think what I find unbelievably helpful is where does Scripture point us to Christ? Where does it resonate with who Christ was and what he calls us to be as as his people? And as we now really reflect on that reality, it does have concrete consequential implications for how we live our lives. And and that, I I want to say very clearly, is that all Christians living on the other side of the revelation of Christ have taken seriously that Jesus Christ means a difference in our lives. Full stop. So there's not a question of, should there be morality? Should, Should there be right and wrong in the Christian community? Yes, Absolutely. What, what's at question here is how broad of a field are Christians given 
to discern what those markers are and how are we called to live into them. And, and that is where I think it gets far more nuanced and discernment is far more required. But I don't want to start this conversation with the, this sense that in any way we're dismissing Scripture, that we're dismissing the significance of morality in the Christian context. Absolutely not. It's just more complicated than opening the, the scriptural text and it saying, this is what you should do, and then you do it. In the Reformed Church, we have lived with the idea that Jesus is God's highest revelation. In other words, Jesus is the clearest message that get, that God has given us, and that Jesus resonates with the truth in Scripture. But because of this, it makes it very difficult to simply open the Bible, particularly to the Old Testament, and say, this is what God says. Because there is another question that needs to be asked, which says, is, is the way that we think this speaks to us in keeping with who we think Jesus is. So when we read an old passage, an Old Testament passage about we, we stone people who do this, and we say, see, God hates people who do this, we have to balance those kind of statements and those kind of interpretations with, well, this is also the God who sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die for our sins out of a deep, passionate love for his people do those two things, do they fit? Do they match? And if they don't, our history of interpretation says that we land on the side of Jesus. And so it, it is never, for a Presbyterian, it is never quite as simple as the, the Bible says this or that. And, and I don't mean in any way that we don't trust what the Bible says. I mean only that it's a more layered conversation than simply one source. And when you only pick one source, particularly when you only pick one part of one source, and you try to use it as a club to tell others they're wrong, we have been um, historically, and I, and I think rightfully so, suspicious of that. And so um, I'm trying to think of an example, Michael, maybe one of the one of the clear ones, well, it, it's actually maybe not that clear, but there have been many moments where Christians have looked to social issues and said, you, you can't, a Christian cannot participate in that. Go to movies, dance, um, be in the military, um, help me here, read science fiction, um, you know, read Harry Potter, read whatever, eat, that, that a Christian can't participate in X, Y, or Z because it's somehow against the Bible. And Christ, Presbyterian Christians have always tried to say, well, let's have a deeper conversation about that. Yeah, and this is where we have to really make sure that everyone understands there's two significant forces that have to be reconciled as Christians think through morality. Uh, I have a professor who uh, once said uh, that every morning when you put on your pants, you have to choose what leg you're going to put in first. And her point was the, all of the pants matter, right? But, but you have to choose where you're going to start uh, if you're going to ha uh, have the whole thing. And this is, I think, true in this conversation. Christians have always said 
that we have the actual concrete things that we as people choose to do and choose not to do. And this should be a reflection of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, if you read the book of James, it's very clear that faith that without works is worthless. And so if a Christian lives their life and they are indiscernible from the culture that surrounds them, they are not living into the truth of the gospel. If their morality is not shaped by their Christianity, they are not practicing their Christianity to the fullness that they are called to. On the other hand, there's a sense in which that should not be directly connected to any sense of having earned your salvation. In other words, it's not causational that you do these things and that therefore God will smile upon you and and will give you salvation. No, Christians also affirm that it is God's work that works within us, the inner transformation that is then reflected in these outward acts. And these two things happen together in this beautiful mixture in which it's really mysterious. There's no um, clear boundary between these things. God, by the power of the Spirit, binds these things together in, in a way that is beyond just simple classification. God works, and then our lives are changed. But throughout the history of Christianity, Clint, different families of faith have emphasized that differently. Some have emphasized the, the work that happens in the Christian life. There's this thing called the holiness tradition in which uh, Christians have believed that after one receives salvation, they must, as part of their Christian discipleship and growth as a Christian, begin to have their life reflect certain social things. So, uh, within different moments in that history, uh, some Christians believed that, uh, like you've already mentioned, if, if you would be dancing, that that would be sin that should be stripped from your life. If you played games with uh, cards or with dice, that that's a form of gambling that shouldn't be involved in your life. Some Christians have gone so far as to talk about what kind of clothes you should wear, what so- kinds of food you should eat. These are reflected most often in Old Testament Uh, laws and um, different purification rituals. And what's interesting in that, Clint, is these groups will begin to emphasize the holiness or the moral uh, qualities of a person's life. And they might be tempted, in fact, the Reformed critique would be that they are tempted to put themselves in a causational relationship. In other words, that, that my works are the thing that I focus on and that the salvation is just sort of part of it. But the Reformed tradition is going to say, no, you need to start in the other place. And it's because of that diversity of understanding that what you see is different Christians live out morality with different emphasis and to different degrees. And and that there's a significant amount of disagreement on what I should and shouldn't do, not based on the things themselves, Clint, but a deeper understanding of how those things play out in a Christian life. So think about if we could talk generally about maybe the two ends of the spectrum. And let's start with the other end, because there are really, realistically, there are very few Presbyterian fundamentalists. There are very few Presbyterian, what we would call legalists. And and in that circle, there is this idea that God is intimately involved in every moment of our life, which is a commendable thing to think. But but what it's where it sometimes has led people is the idea that in every choice I make, God is either pleased or displeased. That that there is inherent in every decision an opportunity to either please or displease God. And so can I wear earrings? God is God has an opinion about that. 
That's a yes or a no. Should they be small earrings or can they be hoops? That's a yes or no. Could I wear a bikini, a one-piece bikini or a two-piece bikini? Not me, but yeah. Okay. So, right. And the, and the idea inherent in that is that there is a right and wrong in every choice. And, and that's not a bad way to think, but it is a good way to get to legalism because now the idea is that every choice should be enforced by people who know the right answers, even though many of those things are not things that the scripture would necessarily say anything about. We, we believe that we can infer from Scripture a yes or no in virtually every decision. The danger of that is moralism, legalism, the, the idea that you become obsessed with the right and wrong, because if every choice has it, then you're constantly navigating that both for yourself and, unfortunately, sort of looking th- at others through that lens as well. And, you know, Michael, I, I would say that large portions of the church, in our experience, still live in that struggle to implement faith in our life, but somehow avoiding legalism. And that's really hard to do. Yeah, I can speak to this as someone who lived uh, my entire early faith life really on the other side of this equation. I did grow up in what I called these holiness traditions. So for me, it's funny, Clint, that we'll talk sometimes about things that, you know, would have just been natural to someone who was Presbyterian growing up that from my side of the Christian fence, I couldn't have imagined doing. I couldn't imagine listening to that band or going to that concert or reading that book. These are things that were just so foreign from my experience because these were these were off limits. And so I only say that to say this. I can speak a little bit from those shoes. And let me interrupt you there, Michael. When you say off limits, help fill in the gaps for maybe people who haven't lived through that. What inherently made them off limits? Is the idea that they were worldly? Is the idea that they weren't of the faith, that they that they didn't build the faith, that they, they weren't religious? Help help us complete that picture. Yeah, I think that's there's a couple things at play there. One is they're all connected to an idea of scripture. So the idea that uh, uh, men shouldn't look at women uh, lustfully, this is something that Jesus says. The idea would be then that that should that that should have some effect or some implication for not only what men do, but what women wear. That uh, Christian women, uh, we also see this in the pastoral letters, should should have some sort of a decency in in what they wear, so that they can help men keep that command that they're given by God. So it's it's grounded in this idea of what Scripture has called us to, even in that case, what Jesus calls us to. But then there's also this sense, Clint where the church should not look like the culture that it lives in. There's this, there's this belief and this understanding that as a Christian community, we should very much reflect a different kind of kingdom. And so therefore, when you go to the beach and all these clothes are being worn, I don't know why I've been drawn to, to that particular image. Let me shift examples. When you have all of these people reading these popular books, there's a suspicion that you shouldn't be reading those books because it's likely that that's tainted with a different morality. That's tainted with a different source of sort of sacred text. And so there's very much this 
this kind of immigrant community mentality that Christians are set apart. And so therefore, these things are not fitting for our community. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's helpful. Uh, so what I was going to say, I, I think, is that what we have to reckon with is that in reality, when you are in those shoes and you're trying to live out these daily choices and you're trying to, as you said, Clint, live into this discernment of what should I do in this particular circumstance, what that tends to do is it tends to bring our focus down onto the stuff of our life, the, the present choice that needs to be made. And while that is good that we're seeking to connect our higher ideals, our faith, our, the good news of Jesus Christ to our actual lived life, the danger and temptation of that is we become fixated on only our lives, on only our choices, on only our uh, situations and contacts and dilemmas. And as we do that, Jesus anticipated this so much throughout the Gospels that when we become fixated on what we do, even when it's for good reasons, when we become fixated on us, we very naturally shift into judges of other people. Because as we're focused on, okay, is this a godly choice? Is this a godly choice? We just naturally bring that lens to, are you making a godly choice? Well, you chose differently, and I made this choice, and I discern that this was God's will. And when you made a different choice, clearly you're not following God's will. And now suddenly we start evaluating the people around us, not because we want to. I think just very clearly because that is our human condition. That is what we talk about, this idea of original sin, uh, that we set ourselves over and against those that surround us. And so we become very quickly, not on purpose, I don't think, but just naturally judges of neighbor. And the moment that we make that transition, from those who are trying to work out our faith for ourselves to those who are holding a faith over others. We've now crossed over a line into moralism as opposed to those who are shaped and fashioned in the character of Christ. And you can see how that would be easy to do in in a system in which each decision is faithful or unfaithful, in a decision where every book you read, every song you listen to, every movie that you choose to see or not to see represents a make-or-break moment, a did-you-get-it-right-or-wrong moment in your faith, ambiguity is not welcome. The, The idea of uncertainty or difference of opinion does not play well. It is it is threatening to that system because it introduces question marks and a tight system of morality does not it, it question marks are not welcome because they bring uncertainty they bring the possibility of being unfaithful or something not being a matter of faith which is very hard for that system to incorporate so if we put that over on one side then i think most of us perhaps have had an experience on the other side, which is to say that we largely have grown up in the faith in a system that thought um, there are right and wrongs, and then there are lots of things that are not faith matters. If I choose to read a book, if it's not a an offensive book, if it's, a, say, Harry Potter or if it's some other book, if I go see a movie and th- there's some things in it, you know, there's a crime in it or whatever, that I can separate those things from my the morality of my faith. And 
most of us have lived in that system where we we navigate those choices without really ever thinking of them as mm-hmm. faith issues at all. They're simply preferences, whether we dance or not, w- whether we listen to rock music or not, wh- whatever it is, whether we drive a nice car or wear expensive clothes. And the danger in this system, the, if that's the far end over there, the, the far end over here is that we end up in this place where we think nothing is right. really a faith choice, that we have the freedom to do whatever we want. And we might use limitations like, well, nobody got hurt, or no crime was committed, or there wasn't a victim. And we say, it doesn't matter what we do, that that everybody can make their own decisions about everything, and somehow um, morality kind of gets pushed behind personal decision, personal happiness, personal identity. And th- that would be, it seems to me, the danger on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, that is a real danger in the tradition where we focus on the the kingdom of Jesus Christ and, and we try not to get fixated on the individual choices, is that we begin to baptize our culture. And what I mean by that is we take the stuff that surrounds us and we say, hey, you know what? God's okay with that. It's in the it, it's our our friends are doing it. Our our friends are watching it, reading it, engaging with it. Uh, this is just the discourse of the day. This is just what it means to be American or to be you know wherever you live. And fundamentally, the danger of that, Clint, is we essentially just give it a hard pass. We just say, you know what, it, it's okay. And uh, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to compartmentalize my faith from my life. And, and ultimately, I'm just going to go through life that way. And that is a tempting choice for the same exact reason that the holiness code is a tempting choice because it's simple. It's not easy. Don't hear me wrong. It's not easy to live out a faith in which you know, hey, I went to church on Sunday and heard a thing that's very different than what I did this week, but for an hour, I'm okay with those differences, right? That, that's not an easy thing to live with, but it's a simpler way to live than to try to bring these things into difficult conversation. Uh, and that's exactly, I think, the best of the Reformed tradition is that we have always said that faith must reflect the actual work of Jesus Christ in our lives. The Reformed tradition, we emphasize Jesus Christ, but we don't in any way undervalue what that means in the life of a Christian person. In fact, the Reformed faith, Presbyterians, uh, Reformed, uh, different like Dutch Reformed, all all of these different sort of instantiations of the Reformed uh, faith have taken public service, public life, very, very seriously. How you vote, uh, what kind of political power you exercise if you're a leader. Um, All of these things have been very prominent in the discussion, thought, ethics of that tradition because we take very seriously that if Jesus Christ is Lord, then that does have an impact on our lives. But we emphasize that you should never get those out of order, that Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else should follow that, that nothing should be done unto its own sake. You, you don't live in a particular way or vote for a particular reason just because you think it's right. It's, it, it needs to be connected to a larger understanding of the gospel, the good news. And the problem with that is, Clint, if I'm going to introduce it, 
is that it requires of our tradition an awareness of and acceptance of mystery, of nuance, and therefore humility. We as a people are very often, not always, there are some things that are just clearly cut and dried, and, and those things exist, but there are so often in the conversations about what we should and should not do as Christians, a lot of room for discourse and for struggle and for discernment. And to be a Reformed Christian means on some level to have the humility to enter those conversations with the willingness to listen and be challenged and, and to live into even sometimes a little uncomfortable tension with those who are on different places. Because fundamentally, remember, the thing that unites us is the person of Jesus Christ, not where we land necessarily on some of these issues that, that Christians are tempted to use as sort of judgments against others and even against self. The great irony, I think, is that the legalist and the the person who sort of thinks I'm my own keeper of law or, or purveyor of law, they both end up ironically obsessed with self. They they both end up inwardly focused on me, and I think that much more difficult position in the middle is to say. There is right and wrong, but it may not be simple. It's not as simple as one obscure verse. It's not as simple as what makes me happy or what I want to do. There, There is a very real struggle to determine what is the will of Jesus Christ in this moment, in this issue, in this decision, and it it is a higher it is a higher calling and I think a more difficult process to then sort out what are the things that are non-negotiable? What are the things that apply to all of us? What are the callings of the gospel that are incumbent on every person who calls themselves Christian? And then what are the areas of life where we have the freedom to navigate our own conscious, our own journey, our own relationship with God, in the humility of saying, God, help me figure this out, and and the reality that I may land in a little different position than someone of a different culture, of a different um, a different place, a different tradition. And, and that that's a much it, it's a much more difficult, and I think it's a much more frightening way to try to move forward because the certainty of what I want or rigid rules are appealing and the ambiguity of, of sorting it out in the middle, mm. I think can be really uh, terrifying to some people. I had a history teacher who I really respected and she had a saying that she returned to very often. She would say that you cannot legislate morality. Mm. And what I, I took her to mean was that you can't tell people what morality is and expect them to be at their core moral. It, it doesn't work that way. You, you can't speak that into the world and expect people to conform to it. As a person who's given some thought to faith, who myself 
have been in this process of formation as a Christian, uh, and and really what that means is uh, bumped up against my own sinfulness over and over and over again, and sought to ask forgiveness and and to repent, to to be changed, hopefully continually renewed into the image of Jesus. What I've discovered is, it is one thing to talk about what is right and wrong, and it's another to allow that to actually begin to change our hearts. And, and that is the work that is unbelievably difficult. And quite frankly, the energy that we spend really struggling with and fighting with ourselves, I, I see this all the time, Clint. Uh, there are some students in particular who think of going to college as one of these right and wrong choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big choice in a young person's life, where they're going to go. And in some cases, uh, youth have internalized this idea that if I go to Northwestern College or Dort College or South Dakota State University or Iowa State, that when I make that choice, I, I am choosing God's plan or not God's plan. And though they're not thinking about it in terms of morality, they are thinking about it in binary terms, that there is right and there is not right. And, and they're seeking the right. And that's a good motivation. But the problem when that is your driving motivation is it keeps you from seeing God's goodness and grace and providence, that God is willing and able to work in lots of different places, in lots of different ways. And that ultimately, it may be less about what does God want me to do in this particular decision and more to do with what gifts has God given me where would I fit? How, how could I continue to grow as a Christian in this place? Some of these questions, I think, are far more helpful in guiding our actual choices and conduct than obsessing over the, the choice that we feel lies ahead of us. Oftentimes, it's the things behind the scenes that enable us to discern God's will in our life. And that, for me, Clint, is, is directly connected to what we have in all faith traditions to some varying degree, and that is this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not a thing we talk a lot about in church in general, and probably the Presbyterian church, but we do believe that we have an advocate, that God is a live network in us, that God is is connected uh, in our own lives, so that the choices that we're making aren't made off on an island by ourselves, that God is is really working in this discernment, making up for the times when we hear wrong and times where, where we try, but we fail. Sometimes we become so fixated on, did I do it right? And this is moralism, that we no longer allow space in our life for the grace that Christ wants to offer to us. And, and so we sort of edge him out as we seek to try to be faithful to him. And, and it's a it's an unfortunate sort of movement, which I think is intrinsic to the human heart. And, and so once again, I think I return to this idea. We would all do well to enter into conversations about what is right conduct for the Christian and to recognize that the questions behind that are often the most helpful questions as opposed to should I or should I not do this one particular thing? Right. I think if we can keep our mind focused on whether the things that we're navigating are kingdom things or not, right? When when I go to the grocery store, it is very likely that what brand of pickles I choose 
has no bearing on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, if I find out one of those companies is abusing people, mm-hmm. is is making kids go out and do their pickle work, it, you know, now now there may be a moral consequence in that. And and as I explore and understand those things, oh. I may feel compelled by my faith to to make that a, a kingdom issue. It, mm-hmm. it may come to a moment where I think I I don't want to participate in what is happening if I'm giving money to these folks. I don't think they're doing things that I want to be associated with. But generally speaking, uh, there is almost nothing at stake in the kingdom of Jesus Christ what kind of pickles I eat. Now, we could have lots of follow-up conversation about stewardship and et, et cetera. But... When it comes to other matters, how do I treat those? When I'm at the grocery store, am I picking up extra food to drop off at the food mm-hmm. pantry? Now, these may be kingdom issues. And, and mm-hmm. when, we, when we focus on the minutia of life that I think probably doesn't have a great deal to do with our faith, we may miss some of the weightier and deeper moments. And for me, it really is a matter of motivation and ultimately, what authority are we looking to as we make decisions? Uh, a lot of people don't know this. Michael, you, you probably are aware of this. So when you become ordained, when you get ordained as a pastor, th- there is a one-time opportunity mm-hmm. for you to opt out of Social Security. And, and this has to do with some strange court cases and some um, some kind of fringe religious groups back throughout history. And y- you can sign off on exempting yourself from Social Security. But the language is that you have to have a moral or religious objection to the concept of Social Security, the whole idea of making amends. of The the idea was people didn't have enough faith in God, so they didn't want to put money aside. They didn't believe in retirement, whatever it was. But you have this moment. And I remember having a conversation with a CPA about, you know, the, having to make that decision. And the CPA said, you know, sign this and we can set you up with an account, an, a, a savings account, or an investment account, and you'll do a lot better than Social Security. And I said, yeah, but that says I have to have a religious objection to Social Security, and I don't. And he said, well, I can make you more money. That's the objection. And, and I'm not lifting myself up as as an example because I've got a million moral failures. But my point is it that becomes a moment. This thing that doesn't seem important now is important. Am I going to be honest or am I going to try and chase money? Am I going to represent my true conviction, which is not I have no problem with Social Security, or am I going to take advantage of a loophole right. – and give my permission to something because I think it benefits me. And and it's in those moments, I think, that integrity and honesty and faithfulness kind of surprise us. They kind of mm-hmm. pop up. And once we see them, that's where the choice is. And unlike the idea of legalism, the choice is not easy. The, those choices 
are hard because we are often turning away from something we want. And that's the critique of this other side of the thing, right? What I want is what is right for me. Well, Christians don't say that. Christians say we are sinful. And by definition, there will be things we want and things we want to do that are not in keeping with our faith. And in those moments, we have to struggle mightily Hmm. with Who's going to be the Lord of my life today? Not even today, but in this moment. Is it going to be the idea that I can make more money? Or is it going to be the idea that I need to be an honest person and have integrity in what I say and do? And those are the choices, I think, Michael, that uh, th- those are when our morality comes into play in a, in a powerful way. Yeah, that's really well said, Clint. And I want to lift out, I think, some concrete markers for both others and for self really quickly. And and it's one thing shared by both. Christians have a long history of using shame as a tool for morality. When, when we find ourselves picking up morality as a weapon to use against others, the way that we most often do that is through the passing on of shame that's taken lots of different forms throughout history. And whenever you find yourself doing that, I I would invite you to consider that a spiritual warning light on the dashboard of your soul to full stop and to reflect, why am I being driven to utilize shame against another person based upon this moral conviction? Because friends, scripture makes it clear, we are not judges. And when we find ourselves in a position of judging and tempted to shame others, that is a really good sign that we're living outside of God's plan for right character. But the other is not one that we think about enough, and I want to make sure that this is clear. That also applies to yourself. We both know that a lot of people live lives full of shame and guilt and an inability to let go of Missed, of missed opportunities and moral failings. And friends, we as people who sin should be expected to have moments of failure. It will happen. St. Augustine, an, an ancient church leader, said that the church is a hospital. And so you shouldn't be surprised when it contains sick people. And there have been so many times in my own short season of ministry where people come to the church and they are either struggling with an addiction or they have had a moral failing and and they are just in free fall and they are in complete sort of a microcosm of shameful sort of like hurricane. And there's a moment where where you just stop and pause and say, this is what we mean by grace undeserved gift, when we talk about mercy, when we talk about unconditional love, this is the stuff of Christianity that we are seeking to trust the promise of. And when we know our own moral failings, when we recognize our own sinful sicknesses, we often struggle to recognize that these truths also speak to us. And that is the danger of moralism. It's not only a weapon we use against others. Sometimes it becomes a trap for ourselves. And if that is your weakness or your struggle or your moment right now, just want to make it very clear that the gospel speaks into that, that that though we may not always be moral, we have been counted as righteous by a gift of grace through faith, which should then move us to address those places in our life where we struggle to be moral. It's not permission, Clint, 
but it also needs to sort of unlock that part of us that wants to sort of hold on to our brokenness. That's not what it means to be Christian. Martin Luther had a thing that was very misunderstood. He once wrote, sin boldly. And what he meant was not to sin. He he wasn't giving people permission to sin. What he was saying was that in the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ, we understand that our sin does not disqualify us from faith. And so our, our checklist, this is the danger of legalism, is that it gives us a checklist and sort of insinuates that if you have enough negative marks, you fail. That's not how the grading system of Christianity works. The grading Christi- the grading system of Christianity is, look, Jesus Christ got an A+, plus. you're all included. Now, try to live out that reality in your choices. Try to do what honors him and glorifies him, and try to live a life that is motivated by service to him instead of service to self. And and we must, if we trust that grace, then holding on to guilt is a kind of... um, a kind of doubt that we have to come to terms with. Lots of people in my experience believe that Jesus forgives other people, but somehow struggle to think that Jesus could forgive them for their personal shortcomings and misgivings. And uh, when we do that, we are misunderstanding who Jesus is and what it means that Jesus is who he is. And, And then on the other side of that coin, Michael, I think as we read the Gospels, it is just so humbling to think that the Son of God, the fullness of God, the the Messiah, the Savior walked the earth, and the religious people around him who knew the law backwards and forwards looked at him and said, you don't know anything about God because you didn't wash your hands and because you healed a person on the Sabbath and because you you did this thing instead of that thing. And, and looking through their system of very rigid rules, they missed the presence of the incarnate God standing literally right in front of them. And that is the danger of moralism, of legalism, is that our focus on the secondary things blinds us to seeing the primary thing. And the the history of the church is ripe with those kind of stories. Now, the same thing happens on the other side. I, I don't want to beat up fundamentalists. The same thing happens to, quote-unquote, liberalism, as we think that we have the authority to determine right and wrong for myself, I'm so busy looking at me that I miss what Jesus is asking me to do. I miss what I'm called to do because I'm so obsessed with what I can do instead of what I should do. And the, the point of both is that they distract us from the central figure of the faith, Jesus Christ, and from being faithful to him. Because what we look at will ultimately determine what we're capable of seeing. And this this may be parabolic, this may not be true, uh, but it's been helpful for me. I, I once heard that when they're training fighter pilots, they train pilots when you look from point A and you turn to look at point B, that instead of just turning and looking, that you should look at intermediary points on the way. The idea being that you should look at multiple points before you get there so that you don't miss something in the middle. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's a, it contains spiritual truth that when we focus 
on ourselves, we will always miss Christ in the room. When we are keeping a report card for ourselves, we will miss the A-plus that already sits at the top of it. And when we focus on the sinfulness that we know we're prone to, we will only fall back into the thing that we are looking at. And, and so if you must choose a thing to look at, which by the way, we all do, that we're making choices and what we give emphasis and priority to in our lives, may we choose Jesus Christ. And ultimately, if we do, it will transform what we do. It will shape our sense of what is right and wrong. But the moment in which we start evaluating others based upon that, I would submit to you, we're no longer looking at the right thing. We've missed Christ who stands in the middle, and we are now exercising judgment over others, which is not a role he's called for us to play. It is far more likely that we will be transformed as moral people if we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and diligently pursue faith in him than if we ever try to track ourselves or others in what they do and don't do. There, there's clearly right and wrong. There are clearly standards. There are clearly things that all Christians should be held to. And in the modern Presbyterian church, we have been arguing about some of those for decades. And the danger is dismissing the idea that there are standards for for us who really don't live on the side of the the yard with legalism our danger is that we accept too much that we become too permissible that's the temptation that our side of the church family has struggled with and and yet even there in a subtle way we begin to focus on the thing itself instead of Jesus and it is a harder way to be the church to come together with differences of opinions about the things that people do and don't do, and to say we're going to try and sort this out in a real way, in a loving way, in a kind way, in a non-judgmental way, that's hard because people are not good at it, and therefore it demands the grace of Christ, the wisdom of Christ to lead us in those moments. And that's the way we've chosen to try and be church, and uh, it is a difficult path in moments of disagreement. And as we continue to live that out, I think it, it, it bears keeping in mind that when we're called to make those decisions, not only in our own life, which is hard enough, but in communal life, we should do so with an eye toward love, with an eye toward grace, and with an eye toward keeping our community together in any um, reasonable way possible without drawing lines that Jesus himself doesn't draw. And um, we have to confess that we have been prone to do that. And so um, that, as with most things, Michael, that aiming for the sweet spot in the middle is fraught with opportunity to get it wrong. I think that's a very level-headed place to end, Clint, and I think as we seek to live this out in our own lives, friends, if you know somebody who you think would be helped by this conversation, feel free to share it with them. Uh, we have people who join us for these conversations in um, a 
completely uh, mind-numbing number of places, Facebook, YouTube, podcast, wherever. Um, if, if you found this helpful, feel free to share it. If we've challenged you or if you disagree and you, you'd like to carry on a further conversation, we're always open to that. Uh, so leave a comment, send us an email, uh, make a phone call to the church. All of that is welcome as we seek to continue to have these conversations with you, exploring these places where we are tempted to fight and how we can put Christ first in our lives together. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody.